0: Hi everyone and welcome to The Debrief. Today we have three topics we're discussing. The Pope is recovering well from a Wednesday surgery. The U.S. bishops are meeting this month, but the Synod on Synodality is not on their agenda. And shocking new developments on the nuns versus bishop story in Texas. In just a moment, Mike Lewis will be joining
1: us on The Debrief. That's a really triumphant sounding (laughs) musical interlude and I think we should do more of that, I think. Maybe from segment to segment or I don't know. No, we'll, not, think, not we'll think. We'll do it that. during. We'll do it with the production team. We'll talk to them offline and see. Yeah. yeah.
0: Once we get a millionaire donor or ten thousand donor. Anyhow, welcome, friends, to the debrief. It's a weekly show where we talk about news, questions, and controversies facing the Catholic Church. I'm Dominic Desouza, the founder of Smart Catholics,
1: and I'm Mike Lewis, the editor in chief and co-founder of the website Where Peter Is. So we have a story on the
0: Holy Father recovering from his Wednesday surgery. Following his weekly general audience, it was announced that he'd gone to—is it Gemelli or Gemelli Hospital? Gemelli, I think.
1: Yeah, it's a G-E, It's G. Gemelli.
0: Okay, a laparotomy and abdominal wall surgery under general anesthesia. But the Vatican press office reported the surgery went well, and there were no complications. Any updates on that, Mike?
1: Yeah. So just to clarify that this operation was was intended to fix some complications that resulted from his 2021 surgery these are very common complications according to vatican news today pope francis is recovering well he's starting to use an armchair he's reading the newspaper they said as a standard precaution he's going to stay in the hospital for five to seven days and his audiences are all canceled as a precaution until june 18th so we continue to pray for the pope we continue to wish him well He's 86 years old. We keep thinking, and but he's got so much more work to do. So let's pray for a speedy recovery. And hopefully he will be back leading us very soon.
0: Fantastic. Now, you also wrote a piece on Wednesday tying the Holy Father's address from that morning's general audience. And he was talking about the missionary zeal of St. Therese of Lisieux. Why do you think they're connected between that address and then what happened afterwards?
1: Well, so to start off, first, I was... Um, Following this address very closely, he had gone to the hospital the day before for what they said would be a checkup. I assume that they planned the surgery at that point or determined that he would need it, but he went forward with the audience. Now, I don't have any inside information. That's just my theory. But knowing that he was going to go to the hospital for surgery, I found it very interesting that he continued his catechesis on evangelization by focusing on... St. Therese the Little Flower, who was a cloistered Carmelite nun. Now, an interesting fact, and I've written about this before, and I also mentioned it in this piece, is that in the 1920s, Pope Pius XI named two co-patrons of the missions of the Catholic Church, universal patrons of the missions. The Mm -hmm. first was St. Francis Xavier, the great Jesuit missionary who traveled from Portugal to... Spain or from Portugal, well from Europe to India to Japan, and then he died right before he got to China. But that was the the next country on his list. And his zeal is fantastic. He's known as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Catholic missionary of all time for the number of people who came into the faith and the distance that he covered. Saint Therese, on the other hand, never went on a mission. It was one of her desires to be a missionary, as Pope Francis talked about it, but why would they pick her? And this is uh, essentially, it's the complementarity of the active and the contemplative life. A lot of people like to draw a distinction between Martha and Mary. Mary spending time sitting with Jesus, getting to know Jesus, while Martha is preparing the food and doing the work so that they can all sit down and have a meal with Jesus. And this is also Mm -hmm. reflected in Catholic vocations, which are divided between contemplative nuns who spend time in the cloister and active religious sisters. Some religious sisters have a contemplative element to their spirituality. It depends on the order and vice versa, the level to which the cloister is, is enforced or is part of their spirituality is important, but it's very interesting that people who are bound to their beds, people who are sick can play a pivotal, perhaps the more important role in the missionary activity and the evangelization of the church. And I think there may have been a little bit of a subliminal message there. Pope Francis is going to be out of the public eye and, uh, he's still going, his heart and his prayers are still going to be with us as we evangelize out in the missions, as we spread the gospel. So I know one other thing, I guess, to say is that these two things are complementary. in that, and this was a line from the audience, was that prayer fuels missionary activity. And if you know anything about Mother Teresa, they start their day with morning prayer, mass and adoration. And then they go out into the world and there are certain Mm -hmm. points of the day where they switch back and forth, just like our friends in New Jersey, sister Gabriella and the Carmelites there, they work and they pray. That's what they do. And they have a life balance. So, yeah, I think there was something very, very strong there.
0: Prescient maybe.
1: Yeah. And Mm. if anyone listening to this is homebound or sick or can't go out into the world, remember that God values your prayers. Or the missions just as much as those of us who are called to go on a mission.
0: That's a fantastic reflection, fantastic meditation there. So we're going to come back to talking about contemplative nuns as our last story, but let's pause for a moment to talk about the church in the U.S. So on Monday, Brian Fraga of the National Catholic Reporter, he wrote an article about the fact that when the U.S. bishops meet in Orlando this month, the Synod on Synodality is not an item on their agenda. So some have said that it's astounding that they won't be addressing it. Why is that?
1: Well, for one thing, this is probably the biggest global initiative started by the Vatican since the Second Vatican Council. So in 60 years, this is a four-year global process. Countries around the world, churches around the world are preparing for it. A while back, probably last year, I did some investigation into what are other continents and other countries doing to plan for the synod. I looked at a few African bishops in English-speaking countries, and it was amazing where the bishop himself was going through the PowerPoint presentation and listing the priorities and the timeline and what the priests would be doing and what the catechists would be doing and what each parish would be doing. And then there would be this mass in the diocese and that mass in the diocese and this big meeting. And it was amazing to see this level of involvement, first of all, from their shepherd directly compared to the U.S., where it seems that a lot of times bishops are defensive. Well, we already took care of that. We, we did what we were supposed to do for the Synod. And the focus, which this initiative, I believe, started after the Synod on Synodality was announced, is on this national Eucharistic revival. And there's some conflicts within there, once again, to bring back this dynamic of the contemplative and the active. Certain bishops have written editorials and given presentations. Some are saying that we need to stress Eucharistic adoration. We need to stress the real presence. We need to stress Eucharistic processions. We talked about Cardinal Supic, and I've learned a little bit more about those cross-country Eucharistic processions and it sounds like what they plan to do is to have four vehicles someone nicknamed them host mobiles <laughs> like the pope mobile yeah. where the monstrance is on display either in a in a window up above or somehow visible as it goes by which is not really a traditional thing whereas others especially some of the more liturgically minded want to see a focus on the Eucharist within the context of the liturgy, which is the most fundamental work in prayer of the church, and then how that transforms us. The Eucharist, through the Paschal mystery of the liturgy, transforms us and sends us forth on a mission. And it seems that they're talking past each other. It seems that certain bishops don't really get Francis's message, because I think it can be tied in very well with the concept of synodality. But for whatever reason, there's this discordance, there's this downplaying of the synod in the U.S. And that just seems like, it seems like this go around, the U.S. church isn't going to be a, a huge factor. in, yeah. in
0: so, so you went on to write a piece, and it was just this past Tuesday, and you entitled it What's wrong with the church in your country? And you just touched on this a few seconds ago, but you're arguing the upcoming meetings are pointing to a bigger problem, the fact that the U.S. church is an outlier in the universal Catholic church. Why are we doing that?
1: Well, it's funny because ever since we started where Peter is, one of our founders, Pedro Gabriel, he's from Portugal, fluent in English, very familiar with American culture, American movies. And he's been contributing to our site, writing in English for essentially people in other countries, even though he lives, he was born, he lives in Portugal. And he's always pointed out, or he's always said, I don't understand the church in your country, or why do American Catholics do this? Why do they do that? Last year, when I went to Rome, I did a two-week visit to meet a lot of the people that I only knew online. I had some meetings set up with various people who worked in and around the Vatican. I met with journalists. I met with people who worked in the Curia. And one of the questions that people kept asking me is what is wrong with the church in your country? Some of them were very grateful for the work that Where Peter Is does because we have sought to translate what's going on in the Vatican and in the global church. We've sought to translate it for the benefit Of US Catholics. But one of the reasons why we jumped into that void is because other US and English speaking media outlets had, they didn't seem to understand the Vatican at all. They didn't understand Pope Francis. They couldn't interpret where he was coming from. And for whatever reason, this seems to be a universal issue with the Catholic Church. There are issues that are priorities in the US Catholic Church or issues of debate. We talk about climate change, support for the death penalty in the United States. I spoke to an Italian doctoral student in theology, and we were talking about culture, and I was asking him about where he was from, and he was asking about where I was from, and we were talking about similarities and differences in church. And he said, this is a question I wanna ask you, and I don't want to offend you, but I can't enter into the mind of a Catholic supporting the death penalty. Imagine that, people who are listening right now who are from the US, it's like a live issue. We have Catholic governors promoting it. We have Catholic priests promoting it. We have big time supposedly Orthodox Catholic publishers publishing thick books defending the death penalty. We have people openly saying that Pope Francis's uh, teaching is only a prudential issue and that it's not binding. If you look at the issue of climate change, yes, there can be differences in policy or how to address it. But the way that I look at certain things like science is I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority in the area of science. And following, and this is what the church, this is what the Pope always does is okay, the Pope isn't an expert on science, so who does he turn to? He turns to the most qualified, most respected scientists in the world. And if the people who are studying the climate overwhelmingly accept that humans are causing climate change, who am I to say, no, I believe this guy on YouTube? I'm not an authority. I Mm -hmm. I can't analyze the data. I'm incapable of that. I have a bachelor's in English language and literature, and I have a master's in publishing, like I analyzing raw data from satellites and ice flows and things like that is is not something that I am capable of doing. When we don't know something, and this is, it's a matter of trust. What we can do is we can use our critical thinking skills to determine who is most likely to give us the best, most reliable information on this question. Yeah. And I think Pope Francis led the way. And I think that this is typical in most countries, especially among Catholics. But for some reason in the United States, there's this contrarian attitude or this attitude that we're going to go against the flow on something that we don't know anything about because my ideological allies agree with me. And Mm so I think it's a matter of, distrust just as much as trust. Obviously, you have to earn trust. But when people are giving trust to people who are equally unqualified, it makes Mm -hmm. you wonder. I think it speaks to a bigger problem in the U.S. church, and it's something that I've sought to address. And Brian's article in, in NCR, I think, was a good opportunity to point to how the U.S. bishops' Just don't seem to be on board with what Pope Francis is doing, Mm -hmm. and I don't think they even some of them even conceptualize what that is. Like when prominent Catholics are accused of not supporting Pope Francis or of being even being anti-Francis, they're like, "Well, what do you mean? I'm in communion with him. I quoted him favorably. I don't say mean things about him, and that's not what I mean." Now, maybe you're not anti-Francis. But being polite about the Pope and paying courtesy to the Pope doesn't mean you're supporting him. And
0: thoroughly ignoring him at the same time. Yeah. Speaking of distrust, then, our last story has a whole lot of, <clears throat> well, I don't know, lines have been drawn and, and people are sinking their teeth into things. We touched on this last week the dramatic conflict between Bishop Michael Olson of Fort Worth and the cloistered Carmelite nuns of his diocese. And you said that the only way this story makes sense is if Bishop Olson and the Vatican have evidence against the prioress, Mother Teresa Agnes of Jesus crucified the Gerlach, evidence that we don't know about. Seems that there has been a very shocking twist to this story, so can you get us caught up to that this week?
1: Yes. Well, I don't know if I'm a prophet, but the way Bishop Olson was acting, and now people, plenty of people can say he didn't handle it right, he was rude. He wasn't communicating properly. But unless he and the Vatican officials in cell, the Dicastery for Religious Life, unless they were completely illogical and out of their minds, there had to be some kind of compelling evidence that we weren't hearing about. And so then, yesterday morning, I wake up to an email from a reader, and there's this story in the Fort Worth paper. And we'll link to it, showing two photographs of okay. really messy tables in what looked like a storage room or a workroom. And they were covered. I am told I don't I didn't recognize them, but plenty of people did, with cannabis packages and edibles, and basically various marijuana products, a large number of marijuana and the products. The
0: understanding is that this is at the Carmelite.
1: And so it was said that this was a confidential informant who sent these pictures to the diocese. There's also a huge bong on one of the tables. This is apparently one of the rooms within within the monastery. Now, once again, the diocese hasn't given us a ton of information about what this indicates. I don't know if this means that they think that One of the nuns has a drug problem, it could mean that they're running a drug cartel from the monastery. Like they nope. We're gonna talk about that in a second, but it's these pictures are obviously shocking. This is much more to the story than vague allegations about the Mm prioress breaking the sixth commandment. So this is a big revelation. Has she responded to this? Yes, yes. So her lawyer this morning stated that the entire thing was fabricated. It was fake. It didn't happen.
0: Okay. Do we know who sent the article to, was it yahoo.com where it, uh,
1: well, so it was the Fort worth paper. And I believe finally the diocesan spokesman released the pictures, answered a few questions in the press said, there's more information, but Bishop Olson will determine when it's right to do that. One of the things that surprised me, however, when I posted this article on Twitter was I would say that a good 80% of the people who responded to it across the spectrum, like this is almost a unifying issue for some Catholics, was still to support the nuns. A lot of them either thought it was fake or that it was misunderstood, but even some of them said, well, you know what? Even if it's true, the bishop still shouldn't have done this and this and this and this or come up with some other explanation. The default response
0: is to dislike or to negate the hierarchy.
1: Yeah. And I think it speaks to the communication in the church.
0: And you wrote actually an article in this, maybe this morning, discussing this case, and how it's emblematic then of church communications. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah. So basically the reason why I predicted there was more information last week Mm -hmm. was because I worked for the church for nine years I've been following the church for another five or six years on top of that, and I've become used to the church's style of communication when there's a big scandal. And I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. Last time I mentioned the issue with Fishermore College in the same diocese in Fort Worth, and Bishop Michael Olson was making all of these unexplained decisions, seeming to persecute them, and then all of a sudden... A few months later, all of these issues poured out and oh, he was, it seems like he was justified in the end. But there are other issues. This is just what the church does. They allow a media narrative to build up. And for whatever reason, they choose absolute silence as their reaction. So obviously in this issue of the nuns and Bishop Olson, Bishop Olson knew there was a problem he started to investigate it. He started to sanction the nuns. After they sued him, he stopped sending priests to do daily mass for them. They only got Sunday mass. These different restrictions, these different threats, and all we were getting from him was were these public statements, while the nuns, their supporters, their lawyer are putting out a huge narrative about Mm -hmm. about what's going on against the bishop and he's not defending himself he's not making any statements he's not even making statements to the effect of there is much more to this story unfortunately due to confidentiality canon law I don't know what the reason is yeah I can't talk about it
0: it's like 101 when the police department has like a case going on they sit up and they say it's an ongoing investigation no comment or something at yeah, very and, least and, a recognition of the issue, right?
1: Yeah, and people get used to it, but when it comes to the church, they yeah. don't get used to it because there's so much distrust yeah. of the bishop. There's so little credibility.
0: To... That's kind of your point, right? You're, you say that this style of communication is harming the church's credibility. Can you unpack that? Yeah, it?
1: if you go back to 2018 when the McCarrick scandal broke, yeah. obviously it's a big deal. Pope Francis puts out a letter. This all happens in June The Vigano thing happens in August. There's a little bit of a Vatican response. Pope Francis says he's not going to speak on it. But the thing is, the Vatican would wait every couple of months to do anything or to say anything. I remember when it first happened, they said, when are they going to kick McCarrick out of the College of Cardinals? And this question kept being asked and asked. The Vatican didn't respond. There was some journalists were speculating that it was going to happen or maybe they had some unofficial information off the record that it wasn't that it was going to happen then all of a sudden one day boom an official letter that mccarrick has withdrawn from the college of cardinals and pope francis has accepted it Then after that it was is when are they going to defrock mccarrick like people demanded these answers and so that was so beginning in maybe august or september They're asking this question on a daily basis. Viganos doing his thing, different speculative reports and conspiracy theories and all kinds of things were coming out in the public. Other people were just concerned. Why isn't the church doing anything? Why aren't they saying anything? Well, the truth is that McCarrick was undergoing the process. Everyone's entitled to a fair trial. He went through the entire canonical trial. Maybe he appealed. Maybe there were some negotiations about what the terms were going to be. Then early the following year, the announcement comes out that he has now been laicized. But in the meantime, all of this anger built up. Then the issue became, when are you going to release the McCarrick report? Because at one point they said, next year, we're going to release the full McCarrick report that'll say everything that went wrong, we're going to analyze it. And I remember following this very closely and talking to everyone I knew in and around the Vatican. When is this McCarrick report going to come out? Here I am. I'm trying to defend Francis or at least present his point of view. And I'm getting no information. The, I think they said it was going to come out in like May 2019. It doesn't come out until November 2020. It comes out with very little notice, like 24 hours, if that. Yeah, But this is the kind of thing it's, I understand if there are certain things that need to be confidential, but when the church's answer is silence, the impression that it gives to people is that the church doesn't care or the church isn't doing anything. Another example, and I just want to point to this, is the case of Frank Pavone, founder of Priest for Life. He was a very vocal bombastic in the last seven or eight years political Mm -hmm. he had run into trouble with a couple of bishops he was incarnated in the diocese of amarillo texas but he lived and worked out of orlando and then in 2016 right before the election he pulls this stunt he makes a video where he takes the corpse of an aborted baby and puts it on an altar and does a campaign benediction for Donald Trump, which priests aren't supposed to be partisan in the first place, but to do something like this. So November 2016, his bishop, Bishop Zubik of Amarillo, wrote a public statement saying that he was going to launch an investigation on Father Pavone. Over the next six years, Father Pavone, he got involved in the 2020 election, he became even more political he became even more outspoken social media he was all over the place he was claiming that he was transferring to another diocese and that was in effect all of this Mm -hmm. stuff happens over six years people were calling the bishop some people could get maybe some information like he's not a priest in good standing but he's in our diocese but beyond that was anything happening who was doing something then out of the blue last december a letter is released from the diocese of Amarillo announcing that father pavone had been defrocked he was yeah. and not only that it had happened a month earlier so they didn't announce it at the time and it explained he had ex- he had ample opportunity to defend himself all appeals had been exhausted and that it was a permanent decision and it was final we have no information about how that trial went on and that whole time there was nothing public that this was really taking place mm-hmm. now i understand that a lot of this is covered by what's called pontifical secrecy canon law says to keep things confidential under certain reasons and this is done in a lot of cases for honorable reasons in a lot of cases it's it's resorting to gossip or i think some of the idea is that somebody is entitled to their good name until they're proven until they're proven guilty. But if we're completely in the dark as to whether the church is even on anything, we talk about, I don't know if we've talked about Vos Estes, Lex Mundi before. It's this document that came out in 2018 or 2019. It deals with bishops who have either covered up abuse or who have been abusers themselves, which was a big gap in canon law and the protocols dealing with abuser priests. It was a big deal. They put it out. And then, well, for one thing, it was a three-year thing. The three years expired, which meant that it was technically, there was no law anymore. But then it was reinstated and now it's a permanent law. But it's like Mm. they didn't explain that gap other than the fact that it lapsed. But here's the other thing. We don't know how Bosestis Lex Mundi is doing because... No one ever tells us from the Vatican, from official church sources, which bishops are being investigated. Sometimes we'll see that a bishop has announced his retirement at the age of 59, or we'll see that a bishop has been kicked out of his diocese and -hmm. journalists will try to get the scoop and they'll put it together and they'll say such and such bishop was found guilty of this and this under, under vos estes, but there's nothing from the Vatican. And here's the other thing. We talk about they talk about certain bishops who I know we read in the pillar a lot that such and such bishop is reportedly under investigation by Vosestes. Well, here's the problem: if they're exonerated, we never hear anything at all. It's as hmm. if it never happened. It's in some archive somewhere that future generations maybe can study what went on. But yeah. if we hear a scandal about a bishop who was potentially involved in a cover up. We get no follow-up. We never hear that, oh yeah, the Vatican looked into it. And granted, they have a right to their good name. But if their good name has been stripped away by the media and people are looking at the Vatican as being complicit in ignoring it, even though they have been active, I think the church needs to reconsider how it deals with issues that are confidential. What is confidential now that morally doesn't need to be confidential? And I think accessibility is very important. Is the bishop looking into this? This is at the Vatican and the chancery level. My priest did this horrible thing, reported him to the bishop, and then that's the last you hear of it. Was it true? Was it investigated? Was it ignored? And this is something that people keep running into. And I don't know if it's a desire to avoid work. They could be somebody's working very diligently behind the scenes, but we don't really get that information. And I think some of it would be preferable, even morally, to share with the faithful.
0: It it makes sense to me. It has been such a point of difficulty. Like you said, it, it makes them seem like they're either ignoring it or culpable. So even some kind of static statement would it wouldn't. Would I don't even think
1: it, I don't think it should be static. I think it should be dialogical, dialectic. It oh, be, I
0: meant like a Point of recognition.
1: Oh, yes. But it's one of those things where the Vatican will occasionally say there's something that that happened 10 years ago and they'll issue an update in 2019. And and then in 2023, people are saying, well, the last update was in 2019. Well, what happened to it? And the fact is, and this is the problem, I think in some cases, the issue just does die.
0: It did die for a while. The Vatican
1: just puts things to the side and nobody is working on it. If there's a change in Pope, if there's a change in prefect, if there's a change in Bishop, maybe some of these issues do die. They'll say they're looking into something, but then it Mm -hmm. doesn't get looked into. And I think this lack of updating or of at least reassuring people Mm -hmm. that this is still on your radar Mm -hmm. is well worth doing. One other story was uh, speaking of the, the USCCB meetings There was a report in Religion News Service by Jack Jenkins on an altercation or an interaction between the papal Mm -hmm. nuncio and Bishop Strickland of Tyler, Texas, back in 2021 at the Baltimore meeting. One of, well, Bishop Strickland's radio partner, Terry Barber, happened to blurt it out on the radio that uh, details that this discussion had happened. And he tweeted, Jack Jenkins tweeted, that this is very rare. Now, I don't know if there's an investigation or a visitation or anything going on with Bishop Strickland right now, but it's extremely rare to have any glimpse that the church is actually doing something about its problems.
0: Well, I think there's a good place to to wrap. And if people want to check these links and these posts that have gone out on wherepeteris.com they are in the show notes next week we plan we intend we promise to talk about the vatican document on engagement with social media that was just recently released it keeps being trumped by these other topics but also we want to cover the highlights of the document and what people in the church are saying about it and like with any document the holy father publishes nobody reads it until a long time later so we are canvassing for some of that yeah, different opinions, different feedback. So next week, we do plan to come back to that one. Thanks again, Mike, for coming on to the debrief. I personally always appreciate the extra context that you provide to an issue. So I find that very valuable. A reminder, available links to these topics are in the description. The Conversation is brought to you from smartcatholics.com. It's the free online community for millennials, creators, and learners. Join our private Where Peter Is group to ask questions, share insights, and suggest topics for next time.
1: And of course, visit wherepeteris.com to read articles, commentaries, and spiritual reflections for faithful Catholics who support the mission and vision of Pope Francis. Do share the
0: episode with family or friends. Hit the subscribe button and the like button so that you never miss an episode of The Debrief.
1: And please support Where Peter Is on Patreon to help us continue bringing you this show. Thanks for and joining us friends. Just yeah. wanted to add, sorry to interrupt. I think we some of us in the leadership team for where Peter is in the next week or two or until the end of July are going to be putting down our putting our heads down and trying to get organized a little bit more. So stay tuned for more announcements, but we appreciate our sponsors and you will be hearing more from us soon. Fantastic.
0: Good. Thanks for joining us. When it comes to news and controversies in the Catholic Church, stay curious, informed, and engaged. God bless you.